This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With David Canfield. Hi. And Rebecca Ford. Hello. This week, we will talk about two exciting features that we are running this week. Rebecca's Reunited series, which reunites uh, various people in this year's awards conversation to talk about their previous projects. And David's feature on Drive My Car, the art house sensation of the moment. We will look ahead at the Sundance Film Festival, which kicks off this week, and also talk about Yellow Jackets, which ended this week and is all many of us can talk about. And at the end of the episode, you'll hear my conversation with Jesse Buckley, the star of The Lost Daughter. So let's start with um, some shameless log rolling. Um, And also, I think we earned it because we didn't plug the Awards Insider issue out now as much as I thought we would last week. So we'll make up for it this week. Um, But this incredible series, Rebecca, that you host spearheaded called Reunited. Um, We did it for Emmy season. It is back for the uh, Oscar season edition. It launches this week. Um, As you listen to this, you can watch Andrew Garfield and Dakota Johnson talking to each other. And there are many more great ones from there. Um, Rebecca, can you just talk about... uh, what it was like pulling all of this together and maybe what some of the highlights are for you of what people can can read and watch. Sure. So for those who may not have caught it during Emmy season, the whole premise is we take two people who are in the awards conversation for different projects, um, but previously have worked together on something and we reunite them for a conversation. And what I found is because they know each other, a lot of them are actually quite close. um, The conversations just end up being really, really fun or sometimes like it was with Michaela Cole and Cynthia Revo, they go very, very deep. So it's turned out to be um, a really interesting franchise. And so this season, this is our first time doing it for Oscar season. We've got some really good pairs. Uh, like Katie said, Andrew Garfield and Dakota Johnson are kicking it off. And I had actually forgotten that they were both in the social network because Dakota has a super small uh, role. It's basically one scene in it where she is a Stanford student that um, Justin Timberlake's character, like, sleeps with and they have a conversation the next day Uh, but it was actually her first movie role Um, so it was really cool to see her go back and talk about that time in her career and and you know these things some of them are done over zoom which is obviously easier to to book but we actually got Andrew and Dakota together to shoot it for video as well um, which turned out to be really great because they are super funny and charming together. And, uh, you know, they were both rushing from other things. And then 
rushing to a, another awards thing right after this. So it was before Omicron kind of shut everything down that we got to shoot it. And, and it was it felt like a normal award season after basically a year of not having that for me to sort of be in a room with people and talking about the season and films with them. You know, they were both talking about how excited they were to see Licorice Pizza. Like it just felt really normal, which was uh, interesting. So yeah, let's listen to a little bit of that interview, which again, people can watch at VF.com. But if you want to get a taste of it, let's hear Andrew Garfield and Dakota Johnson. But then I remember seeing you at a party. I think it was at the Oscars or something. You were just so lovely and energetic and kind of excited to connect. I think that's the, the, the first wow, time that we've... Wow, I didn't yeah. remember that. I right. can't believe you remember that. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was when, like, Mark Townsend, who's here and does my hair, used to put pieces of hair in my hair, uh-huh. you know, to make it look full. Right. And at those parties, I'd pro- probably get a little drunk and then just, like, take them out and put them in people's pockets, like men's jacket pockets, because they're so annoying and it just, like, find a place to put them. But why men's jackets pockets? Because they're so available. Oh, okay, rather than, like, doing some the weird floor. kind of thing of, like, I'm going to get him in trouble with his no, no, lady no. friend later. No, Whose hair is this? No, it would be like, can you hold this for me? I'll get it later and then I'd forget. Uh, okay, so people would wake up with <laughs> your non-hair. My fake hair. Your yeah. fake hair in their pockets. Yeah. So we'll have more pairings coming out the rest of this week and then into early next week. Uh, Anjanou Ellis and Jonathan Majors are already up on the site. And then we'll have Ronaldo Marcus Green and Kelvin Harrison Jr., um, Guillermo del Toro and Jessica Chastain together, which also has video, and uh, Nicholas Bertel and Peter Skiberis, who was the editor on Power of the Dog, will also be up. So be sure to check them out. Yeah, having this series and, you know, alongside things like Actors on Actors that the variety does and then Hollywood Reporters Roundtables, which, Rebecca, you have experience with. It just it is what we have now that is the award show thing where you watch, you know, Saoirse Ronan and Margot Robbie deep in conversation. and You're like, what are they talking about? Like, it's we don't get that in this version of award season we have right now. So it's really exciting just to see these people bounce off of each other. And I was thinking about. Andrew Garfield, knowing that we had our video coming, the video from a couple weeks ago from the Actors Roundtable where he's like cackling at Nicolas Cage's story about riding a horse. Um, And it just it's such a delight to see them interact in this way. Yeah, these turned out really great, if I do say so myself. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. If you're listening and you have an upcoming awards project you want to promote and you want to pair yourself with someone for uh, for us to make you talk to each other, get in touch. Uh, This is the series is one of the most exciting things we get to work on. So thank you, Rebecca. Well, to go back into the log rolling method, I also wanted to give David a chance to promote the story he worked on for this week, which is a big feature about Drive My Car. Um, And we've talked about Drive My Car kind of here and there for a couple of weeks now. It's been racking up this incredible amount of critics' prizes. And um, David, your piece isn't, you know, explaining why Drive My Car has been such a hit, but I think it does that anyway, um, just by digging in so deep on how it was made. So you wanted to write it, I assume, because it's gotten this huge amount of momentum like that. That's that was your impetus to dig deep on it, right? Yeah. And also because I I think I myself took some time to get to it. I had some friendly publicists who were very uh, insistent that this was one worth watching. And this was before it had won any Best Picture Prize. It had won the um, Screenplay Award at a can. Um, And I was kind of deep into (laughs) the fall screening madness and running around Los Angeles. So I kept putting it on the back burner 
And finally, I, I thought, oh, I'll, I'll I'll give it like an hour and a half here because it's a, it's a three hour movie. So <laughs> you must be primed <laughs> for that. And I was just completely stunned by it. And it's it was my favorite movie of last year. And so I was thinking about ways to cover it. And then this was, I would say, like a couple weeks before it won New York Film Critics Circle's Best Picture Award. Um, which doesn't always translate to, you know, broader Oscar success beyond um, an international film category, but it doesn't hurt. Uh, and then it won Los Angeles and National Society of Film Critics and yeah. uh, just won Toronto and Seattle. And it's it's built the kind of momentum that is pretty hard to deny um, for a movie with the potential to break out beyond the international feature race. Uh, and Katie, we've been talking a lot about the globalization of the Academy and what films could benefit from that. And a lot of those early seeming contenders have maybe stalled out a little bit. Um, But this movie is really resonating. And I think the more it wins, the more it puts on people's radar who, you know, like me, maybe (laughs) have Mm -hmm. not, uh, you know, were reluctant to, to make that time commitment to, to actually check it out. And, and, um, board the train get in the car <laughs> yeah no getting in, getting in the car get, obviously getting the in metaphor. the car yes um and and yeah so i i decided to talk to because i was so taken with it um a lot of people who were involved in the making of this movie i was particularly interested in the editing because it's i don't want to say it breezes by but it is um a really specifically crafted movie in that regard and it it, it has such fantastic momentum and it's segmented in this really interesting way. And also a lot of it is set inside of a car and you, there are a lot of choices that had to be made between things that seem as simple as reaction shots and who to focus on in this moment. Um, that really helps the movie come alive. And I just came away with an enormous appreciation for it. Um, and, and really a hope that it can outperform expectations. Cause I think even now people are reluctant to predict it doing too well. Yeah. I mean, Richard is one of those New York critics who kind of helped launch this momentum, I think. Like, what are your thoughts on how far it can go from here? Well, it was only me, Katie. I'm solely responsible for <laughs> yeah. it. So, yeah, um, the New York Film Critics Circle is just your LLC, weirdly. <laughs> it's just, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting movie. I'm, I was at Cannes this last year where it premiered, and I went to uh, a little kind of later afternoon party on a rooftop, and it was a bunch of students were there who were, like, doing internships for the festival or production companies or something. And, like, every single person I talked to, and I was like, what have you liked so far? Said Drive My Car, which I think had screened that morning. And I was like, oh, well, shit, I didn't do that because <laughs> it was three <laughs> hours long and, you know, it seemed a little bit um, intimidating. But that was really, you know, a, a really early sign that this was something special that transcended language, transcended length, transcended subject matter to an extent. And it's been really cool to see that endure. It's been very dutiful about going to the festivals and then, you know, sort of reaped the um, the long game uh, results with all of these critics prizes. And, you know, I like to see people like online engaging with the movie and being excited when it wins prizes and stuff like that. I do think that some of the like, well, this is, means it's a shoe in for Oscar nominations is maybe a little bit optimistic, given that like critics groups oftentimes can align with, you know, the formal award stuff, but more often kind of don't. But I think no matter what, like the film 
has tons of eyes on it. People are aware of it. It really, in December, kind of emerged as like one of the 2021 movies to see a sort of defining movie of the year in some ways. So regardless of what its future awards chances are, I I think it's, you know, from those early conversations at Cannes to now, six months later, it's really cool that that um, that it's still still driving, (laughs) you know, it's still going. (laughs) And um, and hopefully that means that people will also go check out Hamaguchi's um, other film from 2021, uh, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, which is also excellent. And it's making money, which is not um, something that you expect from a three-hour movie about Chekhov. Um, And, you know, I don't think it's, you know, going to, like, be on the parasite path exactly. It's like this huge box office thing, but that's another good sign that it's just getting people's attention. Yeah. One interesting element of the film's campaign, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, is it's kind of cleared the field a little bit among international films. It's distributed by Janus Films here in the U.S., which is not, you know, it's not even a neon in terms of its, you know, Oscar history uh, among at least films that, it, you know, contemporary films is distributing. The, the Janus logo for me is so many classes I watched, or so many movies I watched in college where it was just like, ah, exactly. this is an international yeah. <laughs> classic. Like, it's right. very, very revered, but not uh, buzzy, historically. <laughs> <laughs> yes. They, they don't hit, like, Hollywood where it's at in this exact moment. But they're, no. they're doing that a little bit this year. Um, yeah. But, you know, coming out of Cannes, uh, you had Titan win the Palm. You had uh, a hero win the Grand Prix from Oscar Ferrati. And then into Venice, you had movies like Parallel Mothers, um, which was a really strong entry from Pedro Moldovar. And you had The Hand of God, which won uh, The Silver Lion. Um, all these contenders that on paper would have seemed more obvious, but in one way or another, they've all, I don't want to say completely fizzled, but I, I think outside of their, you know, maybe a long shot screenplay nomination or an international feature nomination, they're not really those broad overall contenders um, that they seem like they could evolve into. And and Drive My Car is, is the one movie of the non-English language class that I think has that potential uh, to hit in a few different areas, like maybe uh, an expanded Best Picture lineup, or definitely I think it's getting a strong run and adapted screenplay. And that's a real credit to the rollout of the film. It's played really gradually, um, city by city. And it's also a credit to uh, the critics groups, like the New York Film Critics, who have uh, kept it at that level in a way that's really difficult to sustain for movies that aren't you know, that more mainstream part of the conversation. Yeah, I mean, I think people tend to overestimate the amount that critics can kind of put their heads together and be like, yes, this is going to be the movie. You know, right. there, I think there were these rumors about the New York Film Critics Circle, like having debate about something, which is, yeah. I, Richard, you would say, is <laughs> we not were what wearing happens. our barrister wigs and saying, good <laughs> sir, you know. <laughs> I mean, you can, you're welcome to reenact that for us anytime. Um, but, you know, if you're in the Los Angeles Film Critics Circle and you know that Drive My Car has won at New York Film Critics Circle previously and you still put all your weight behind it, that is a conscious choice. That is saying, hello, we really want to yeah. push this to the front of people's attention and the same with the National Society of Film Critics, which, Richard, I think you're also in. I don't know if mm-hmm. you have insight on how that works, too. But there, it's not a conspiracy, but it is certainly a group of critics saying, no, we want to keep banging the drum for this and putting it in front of people. And part of that, honestly, is just it's sort of inarguable. You know, I know that not everyone loves that movie. And certainly, like, um, it's not like at any of the critics things I voted for. It got every single vote. Like, no, of course not. But like, yeah. The consensus is strong enough. I think that the movie, you know, it's dovetailing interestingly, you know, kind of from Parasite till now, like 
a, a much bigger interest in East Asian film and TV um, in the United States than has existed, mm-hmm. you know, in my memory outside of the world of anime and stuff. And so that that that, that helps. I, I also think this is maybe a silly thing to say, but like that red sob in the movie is so chic. The logo for the film is chic. It just like <laughs> it, it's been very well packaged in addition yes. to the film itself being really beautiful. And um, Hidetoshi Nishijima, who plays the lead, is like very handsome and he looks really striking in all the film stills. And like, yeah. it's just um, I, I think that movie has enough sort of it has that sort of international film festival glam but then you know to kind of maybe attract people and then the critical praise to attract people but then when you actually sit down with it it's this really human-sized accessible Mm -hmm. moving portrait of people who find each other and and there's nothing you know not to be corny but there's nothing more universal than that so so the the sort of image of the film is only further deepened and and actually surpassed by the the film itself, which I think sometimes doesn't happen when you have these flashy things show up and win all these things. Um, It's more about like the sort of the film's profile than the actual text of it. But the text here seems to be the one, the thing that's resonating most, which is great. Yeah, Yeah. I think that's true. And and also we can't forget that it's a film about the making of a play, which Hollywood, of course, loves to see uh, <laughs> their own work in a film. And, and it's really, really, really well done. And, and I think, you know, theater nerds especially love this kind of story. So it has a, a lot going for it. And I think that's why people are sort of getting past the, the three-hour runtime, which I also, like David, was like, oh, gosh. But it's totally worth it, of course. We spent so much time complaining about all the two and a half hour movies. Uh, we didn't know that the three hour one would be the one to really run away with it. And I watched it wearing a mask the whole time. So wow. you, know. <laughs> you, that, you win the prize. <laughs> you win. Do we? Th- have that was op- just at home, by the way. I just was wearing my mask. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have an operating theory about why, like some of the other international films that we thought would be stronger contenders, haven't been able to kind of get the momentum that Drive My Car has? But as we were saying, like a hero had a f- had fans. Parallel mothers had fans. Titan, I think you know we all knew was a long shot for the um, international feature nomination. But do we think that there's room for like another international feature to to surge again, or is Drive My Car just going to be the one? There was a lot of um, frustration. I think completely valid frustration um, about the BAFTA long lists from last week because I think 59 out of the 60 performances uh, cited were English language. And, and that was a real wow. contrast. That was a real contrast to what they had put together uh, for the first edition of the, these new long lists last year, um, where to the point where Penelope Cruz couldn't even make the top 15 for actress. And and I, I wonder what's going on there because I think that's absolutely a reflection of what's happening um, with campaigns here in the U.S., and I'm not really sure if it's the sort of reemergence of bigger, starrier, um, in some cases, theatrical movies that, and there seems to be a real, you know, I'm just thinking about House of Gucci getting ensemble at SAG, say, and, and that also got a production design nomination from a guild the other day, and, and these kinds of movies are starting to pop up a little bit more. I wonder if there is more of an effort to rally behind bigger movies than we'd perhaps expected. Um, mm-hmm. and, and a kind of embracing of a return to a status quo to an extent. Yeah, the Hollywood is back narrative did take hold, even if it, yeah. it was a bumpier box office wise. It's worked out <laughs> yes. for awards. Yeah. The, the other, maybe uh, the area where I'm a little bit like, well, maybe we're underestimating them still is some of these movies haven't even been released yet. You know, A Hero's not on Amazon Prime. 
the worst person in the world, which, you know, Neon's campaign is still in its more nascent stages there because it's not, you know, getting a real release until February. It had a qualifying run yeah. at the end of last year. So, you know, these movies can still, they still have some time to build together enough of an audience and, and a, particularly an Academy audience to fare better than expected. I mean, I don't know that anyone not thought Not much, that, though. <laughs> I mean, voting much, starts but- in like a week and a half. Did anyone expect Thomas Vinterberg to get nominated for director until mm-hmm. he was nominated for director? You know, there are some things that are harder to gauge, especially among these movies, because they're being discovered by Academy members in a different way. Obviously, with something like Drive My Car, you know it's being discovered, which is why it has a leg up on these other movies. But yeah, I'm, I'm just wondering if, if there is still time for those other movies to build some buzz. Well, Vinterberg was microdosing the Academy with alcohol. So like that, I think, <laughs> swayed them. They had a um, great time. You know, it is interesting thinking about, you know, Drive My Car's success and uh, where other films maybe aren't making on long list or whatever. And Penelope Cruz isn't getting the nominations we thought she would. And how those dialogues are in bigger dialogue with like the rest of Hollywood and the Academy and the industry. You know, this is a very niche thing, but, uh, you know, relegated to the horrors of Twitter. But like, you know, this weekend, the New York Times put out uh, Tony Scott and Manola Dargis is like and the Oscar nominees should be. It was just their sort of fun, silly. Here's what we would nominate in the bigger categories um, if it were up to us. And. You know, some people on Twitter got kind of salty about it because, oh, you know, where's Belfast? Where's all this accessible stuff? It's just this is snootiness. It's snobbery. It's elitism, which, I, I you know, these movies are, will at some point be available to all. So I don't know how elitist it can be at this point. But but, you know, it, to the extent that the actor Paul Walter Hauser had a sort of tweet <laughs> storm thing and has now like deleted his account about Wasn't it. Wasn't like, he threatening to break arms over Yeah, yeah. it was. Uh, so now the, him his pushback against my Corella review doesn't seem quite as <laughs> isolated. An incident. I'll just say that. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I do worry. Some, I mean, it's so great that the international features and international television like Squid Game have been really, you know, going to shoulder to shoulder with American or English language stuff uh, recently. But, you know, as with any bit of progress, there is also a pendulum swing back, a backlash, whatever. Yeah. And I do see these camps emerging. And maybe this is just my sort of echo chamber of who I follow on Twitter or whatever. But of like, is it going to be a populist year or is it going to be a snooty art house international year, which I don't think those any of those should be mutually exclusive, but um, they seem to be kind of setting up that way. So I'll, I'll be curious um, if the Academy is even paying attention to this dialogue, cares about this dialogue, or if they're just going to do their own thing and, and maybe do a mix of both. Um, well, here's a question moving from Best Picture to Best Director. It's been for the last three years, uh, at least uh, one director working in a foreign language and on an international feature eligible film has been nominated for Best Director. I think we had talked at varying times about Oscar Farhadi, Pedro Almodovar, possibly doing that this year. Would it be Hamaguchi if it happens this year or, or do we think that will happen at all? Uh, I think it would be him. And I, I do think he's in the conversation for sure. Um, just yeah. given given how that branch has been voting lately, he definitely cannot be counted out. Yeah. I mean, you go back and look at the Wikipedia page for Best Director winners, and it's not just like the the nominees from the last few years from films made in other countries, but just the amount of uh, directors born in other countries who have won director. Like Damien Chazelle is the only one born in America in the last no, decade, it's crazy. which yeah. is incredible. Like, you don't put it together until you look at that track record. So, yeah, the um, the director's branch is really leading the charge on on looking uh, more and more broad, which, you know, I think we can all say has probably been to the betterment of the Oscars. And it's kind of a feedback. 
feedback loop because the more, you know, international directors they nominate, the more get invited to the Academy. And so it kind yeah. of keeps on going. Or, and even the more people like us are just like, well, you can't count out the, this year's Thomas <laughs> exactly. Vinterberg, you know, <laughs> he goes back and forth on it. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hillary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists— Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Well, let's look a little bit into the future, not too far, because this week is the Sundance Film Festival. It is all virtual again this year. Um, I think not to anyone's surprise, but maybe disappointment. I know Sundance had been working really hard to try to make it a safe in-person event, but Omicron had other plans. Um, Richard, you'll be staying put at home and not catching Omicron or God knows what else on a Sundance shuttle, which is good. But how are are you feeling about this virtual event uh, for the second year in a row? Well, I do want to say that if anyone is going to be in the Park City area this coming week, um, there is a studio condo just that's going to sit empty and there is no <laughs> refund for. So uh, we'll Go have a, few, a party. Uh, Send us I pictures. Think a few, I think a few of those. <laughs> yeah. Uh, always read the fine print on Airbnb, folks. Um, but uh, yeah, it you know, so it's, it's a bummer to not be gathered together. But I think ultimately, uh, had we gone... But you couldn't really safely or comfortably like socialize really at a party in the evening. I think it would have been kind of a weird half and sort of isolating experience anyway. So maybe better to wait to 2023 and just so it can be, you know, it's full self again. Um, That said, you know, last year when the festival was being put together, everyone knew it was just going to be virtual. And so the, the submissions were fewer and it was not, you know, as starry and big because I think a lot of um, producers and financiers and maybe even distributors didn't really want to like just do an online thing but because this year was originally going to be in person we have some bigger titles we have you know lena dunham has a film jesse eisenberg has written and directed a film starring julianne moore um you know it feels a little starrier a little more traditionally sundance while also offering hopefully you know movies that are not on our radar currently um beyond a a couple sentence description but sound interesting so what else is on your radar Well, let's see. Um, I am very curious about this movie starring Bill Nye uh, called Living, um, mostly because the screenplay was written by Kazuro Ishiguro, uh, the novelist, you know, Remains of the Day. He recently had Clara and the Sun, Never Let Me Go, which is one of my favorite ever novels. Um, It's directed by uh, Oliver Hermanus, who did uh, Moffy, I think, in 2020. Uh, which was a South African gay military drama. So there's an interesting pedigree there. And also the film is based on a Kurosawa film. So there's a lot of sort of behind this project. Um, You know, not much is really known about the plot. It's Bill Nye plays a sort of, I think, government official who 
maybe is dying. Uh, but anyway, much like the father at Sundance uh, mm. two years ago, here is a venerable British actor, in this case, who has never won an Oscar, nor has been nominated, I think, maybe getting that big later career juicy um, art house role that could put Bill Nye in the conversation. And, you know, who wouldn't like that? I mean, you know, I think most people probably think of him as, um, you know, from Love Actually and, and Pirates of the Caribbean. But like, you know, he's been doing amazing work in all media uh, for many years. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to that just as I am to seeing Julianne Moore in that Eisenberg film. You know, I um, it, it, it'd be nice to kind of wash the stain of Dear Evan Hansen out of my head when it comes to Julianne Moore. <laughs> wasn't her fault she no was no fine she's fine in it Hansen. she's fine in it but you know and are they still trying to kind of make events out of some of these virtual premieres and you know not let people see them in advance and, and build buzz for the event itself um yes uh I, I have seen some things like that i actually am going to an in-person pre-screening of a film tomorrow night in new york um which you know everyone fully masked and boosted and all that sure. but like so it's and there's not like a party or anything but like you know I, I think in terms of the actual virtual screenings yes there is a set premiere time where people can tune in but then for certain you know press credential people that film will be available uh available to stream for a certain amount of time afterward um i don't know that they have all of the sort of digital infrastructure they had last year um like the virtual reality parties and all that just because they weren't planning on doing this you know they were there was always going to be an online component to this year's festival, yeah. but, it, but it was supposed to be mostly an in-person thing mm-hmm. um and i'm okay with that i i think you know it, it's it's not ideal to just kind of watch these movies on your couch um i think especially a a festival like sundance like these smaller films really benefit from the charged atmosphere in the Eccles uh, or at the library or any of the other screening venues and a really engaged audience um sundance audiences are um you know just as toronto are like very you know happy to be there and and really um supportive uh vocally of films you know after they've you know they don't they don't talk during them but so we'll miss that but um you know there's enough on this lineup that hopefully we'll have some sort of coda level breakout i keep hearing things about this movie called palm trees and power lines um that is a coming of age thing um jonathan tucker plays one of the grown-ups in it i don't know if people remember him from the 90s but i do uh, and uh, <laughs> you know so it, it's hard to kind of predict what that smaller movie that we don't we're not really sure what it is you know what that'll be because that's how that works but i'm optimistic and i think you know sundance is obviously known for launching the biggest documentaries of the year so i assume uh you know we'll see we'll see that there's there's a kanye west doc a bill cosby doc a, a princess diana story because we haven't had enough this year no i don't know enough about princess <laughs> um, diana at this point <laughs> and 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 then i think abigail disney had directed something which should be probably get a lot of attention so you know i'm sure we'll see a lot coming out of out of the documentary space right and i believe the kanye doc is 270 minutes long Mm-hmm. Is that right? Oh, great. Mm-hmm. I think it's really long. Yeah. Yeah. Docs are always I, I that's always kind of my blind spot at these things, because um, when you're re- reviewing at a festival, I find at least like a documentary because it's factual. I'm like, well, I don't have time to like research and make sure that I know what I'm talking about. So I tend to sort of not cover them. But um, but yeah, I'm definitely going to do that. I also think, you know, starting with Hereditary a few years ago, I have really committed or maybe The Witch actually before that. I'm like, you know, Sundance Horror really mm-hmm. breaks out a lot. And I know that I'm scared, but I have to do it. And maybe it'll be a little easier at home. Um, and to that end, there are 
you know, a variety of films in like the midnight category that fit that bill. A lot of post get out sort of socio-political horror, um, which is interesting. Probably most interesting is a movie called Master with Regina Hall that's set on a college campus. I'm really, really eager to see that. Didn't uh, Get Out have a Sundance premiere before, yeah. uh, like a month or two before it opens? So I mean, yeah, I guess it's like the the goldest gold standard of Sundance horror. But yeah, it was like the secret there. Sundance screening that year, the surprise. Ugh. Yeah, bring back secret midnight screenings of big buzzy movies someday. So one last thing before we get to uh, my interview with Jesse Buckley at the end of the show, we want to talk about Yellow Jackets, switching back to TV for a brief moment, um, because it has been the runaway buzz success. Oh, God, buzz. I'm sorry. I really didn't mean to do that. <laughs> buzz, buzz. Um, of the winter, um, kind of as soon as succession ended, everyone needed something else to talk about, and Yellow Jackets ran with it, to I think probably the surprise of everybody. Um, you know, Showtime mm-hmm. is not typically a network that gets these big runaway hits. Um, it just ended its first season. It is renewed for a second. We don't want to spoil too much of it, um, but Richard and David, it sounds like you guys were as engrossed by this series as I was. What's the What was the secret sauce? Why did Yellow Jackets just capture everybody all at once? Cannibalism. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's cannibalism. Uh, the, 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 the threat of cannibalism. Yes, the looming threat. The yeah. Yeah. Um, I stayed up till two in the morning finishing it last night um, because I had seen the first couple episodes months ago when the screeners were first available, liked it, and then sort of had to attend to other things, you know, in life and work. And and uh, and then it this wave came through and I was like, oh, well, I guess I got to catch that if I can. So I'm really glad I did. Um, yeah. I think the secret sauce is the cannibalism, as mentioned, but also, you know, it's been long enough that Lost sort of, for, for, for some, for me included, it's um, bungled ending has faded some from memory. So I'm willing to go back into a guys, where are we plane crash survivor thing? And then they graft on this. I get it. It might, it might sound unfair to call it nostalgia because it's more than that, but you have Christina Ricci, Juliet Lewis, uh, you know, Melanie Linsky, Tawny Cypress in the present tense as the older characters. And so those of us hovering around that same age, looking back at our own youths, like there is something poignant about it in addition to the mystery box construction of what, you know, is going on in the Canadian, I think it's supposed to be Canadian wilderness um, in 1996. Um, So it's really tapping into both an affection for things old, but also doing something new with it. And um, that's hard to synthesize and to be perfectly blunt, rare to see on a network like Showtime. Um, And so it's, yeah, it's really, it's it's a nice surprise. And that's what people are looking for these days. It's like just something that comes out of nowhere and works. Yeah. I think that the performances too are so much better than they would be perhaps in another version of this kind of show. Like all four of those, you know, lead adult actors you mentioned, Richard, I mean, I, I, they, there's a lot of depth to them and there's been a lot made of the fact that uh, three of those actors particularly had their own sort of 90s <laughs> angsty teen phase and their moment in the media that could be looked back on with a critical lens and, and, I think what Melanie Linsky particularly brings to Shauna is so layered and complicated and interesting. Um, and Christina Ricci is so much fun <laughs> as as Misty <laughs> and, and so committed to that particular kind of psyche that there's a, there's a real, I just found it engrossing watching them and the symmetry between their performances and the teen actors who are all also so good. It makes the, timeline hopping and and watching these two parallel stories um, that much richer. And I I also 
my own reluctant my only reluctance uh, to going into the show was I'd seen some of Amazon's The Wilds, which is kind of like a YA version of you know, mm-hmm. the, wil- the wilderness plot. I, I watched The Wilds. <laughs> 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 and I think that this one just it, it takes it to it's not YA and it takes it to another level of real maturity and complexity and and it ends. I don't want to spoil anything, but the, there's an explosive argument in the season finale that is just so perfectly realized um, mm-hmm. in the in the wilderness timeline, the the teen timeline that I just kind of synthesized and crystallized everything I loved about the show in terms of its commitment to strong performances and characterization and just those hallmarks of good television that aren't uh, in as many television shows as we'd like uh, that are very present here. I thought they did such a great job in the finale of bringing it back um, kind of past the cannibalism and back to the, um, I think the animating idea of the show, which is that like teen girls are terrifying and that the relationships that they can have can be so brutal and, you know, so prime for tribalism. You know, it's the Lord of the Flies thing, but with girls who I think, you know, as we all know, can be even more prone to that kind of thing. And I thought that the season kind of would stray away from that sometimes. And the amount of theories that popped up around it that like went all over the place and God knows fan theories uh, help shows stay on the air. And, you know, some of them may turn out to be right in the end. But what's important about it, I think, is the dynamics and the really complex dynamics that developed between them and I loved where it left it in the season finale and makes me even more interested for a second one and I think there's an interesting metaphor at work there in specific about its time um you know you have Lewis and Ricci and Cyprus and Linsky like who who were you know who were young women in the 90s at a time when the culture was very different yes it was pre-social media so some things were quote easier but we have the culture has a much broader and more empathetic language about girlhood now yeah. than we did then. And so these older characters looking back at the relative wilds of 25 years ago um, that are you know manifested in, in, in brutal form in, on the show, there's something I think really interesting and, and again poignant about the sociology lying under it, um, all scored by this incredible, you know, mixtape of songs from that era that, you know, evoke such Proustian memories, you know, the minute you hear the opening <laughs> strains of, you know, a, a garbage song, you know, you're just really transported back in in a way that's both comforting and also scary. And do you think we can uh, finally get Melanie Linsky some awards attention to, to keep it on theme for our show? I mean, I, I get, like you said, Christina Ricci's doing amazing work on this, Juliette Lewis. Like, there's great performances in it, but she, for me, is the real, like, heart of the whole thing. And her performance goes so many different places. She gave this wonderful interview to Rolling Stone recently, um, kind of getting into, like, her approach to it and, like, anxieties around it. And it made me just want to kind of give her everything same i'm hoping she goes really far and i think she could there was a a vulture article outlining just how well it's done um which which kind of surprised me i mean you can definitely sense when it hits on twitter and and a certain you know segment of viewers have have clicked with the show but it's i think it was around five million an episode um average and i'm sure for the finale it was much higher given that that was the average um which is really strong and they had placed it after the Dexter sequel reboot. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. And it, it's interesting how it's kind of taken, it almost feels like Dexter almost played the role of like a Showtime Ray Donovan or, you know, the, the, it, wasn't a show, it was a show that was very widely watched, but I didn't really know anyone talking about it. Yeah. Um, it, it, it was, it was sort of like 
it, it blasted through in terms of popularity, but didn't really leave much of a cultural impact, at least as far as I could tell, outside of the finale, maybe. Um, whereas Yellow Jackets, you know, it had strong viewership, not as strong, but it was it left so much more of a cultural dent. Um, and I think that that's kind of the Emmy sweet spot, which is popular enough and more importantly, talked about enough where uh, it can it can fare very well. And as we've talked about the drama categories at the Emmys since the limited series of Boone have always been a little bit weaker and that should work in its favor. Yeah. I was nervous at first about it not being a limited series. I kind of felt like when I was midway through the season, like, oh, wait, this really shouldn't keep going. But now now I think it can pull it off. My household cheered that cliffhanger. (laughs) (laughs) As a friend of the podcast, Bobby Finger, texted last night when we were talking about the show, she was like, I can't believe I'm going to be watching this for the next six years. (laughs) But like, I happily will. You know, he he and I both stuck to Homeland to the end. So um, I I think that I, at first, maybe when I watched the first two episodes, um, what kind of delayed me from continuing on was that thing hanging where I knew it wasn't a limited series. And I was like, do I really want to make this investment? Am I going to be frustrated at the end of episode 10 that I have to wait, you know, 18 months for the next run of episodes? And I, you know, last night was feeling a little bereft when the last episode ended. And I was like, well, there's no more. But I I, I think it was still worth it, you know, that, that it's a great cliffhanger that both answers some things and poses a lot more questions. And um, that's what you really want to do. And all the interviews I've read with the showrunners was this funny feeling from them of like, yay, it did so well. Oh, shit, it did so well. Like, now we have to <laughs> yeah, yeah, do yeah. it all over again and probably better. And, and you know, and because I, I think for me anyway, the big thing that I want satisfied, and I'm sure lots of other people do, and this is not spoiler to say, is is any of what's going on Supernatural? Because there is yeah. a hint at that, but maybe that's just sort of a sort of poeticized, like, fear of the wilderness or whatever but um yeah like uh, well like having a ouija board at a slumber party level of supernatural exactly and they can keep teasing that for a while and being elusive about that for a while but at a certain point they kind of have to tell us what's going on which actually i think is sort of where the wheels started to come off the bus or the plane uh, with lost and so um, this isn't quite as ornate as lost is at this point but like I have the tiniest of fears that um, once things are actually set in stone, here is what's happening, literally. It could be a little bit alienating, but I hope not. I hope they figure out a way to do it. And the, and the nature of the cliffhanger and who it involves uh, would would say that they really do need to address it because um, yeah. there's, a, there's, an answer, there's an answer that uh, we will need. <laughs> there was a great piece that ran, I think, the day after the finale from Emily Vanderwerf at Vox, kind of about the nature of the mystery box shows like Lost and all the many shows have been inspired by it and how Yellow Jackets kind of represents a move away from it where it's like the answers are mostly what you think. Like there's a lot of Occam's razor going on in some of the, the um, you know, the mysteries that get answered in this season of it, which I think is really powerful and maybe a really useful way to avoid some of those traps you're talking about. That like if it makes emotional sense, then the audience will be satisfied more than being like, whoa, I can't believe this crazy twist happened. And if they're going for five seasons, they may need many crazy twists. But I, that helped me really put into place like why the finale works so well for me, even though so many of the you know best and most fun fan theories had nothing to do with the show itself yeah one of the one of the things that i read in an interviews with the showrunners um that gave me a little pause but also made me excited because i you know people we're we're, we're complicated uh, beings people um was that the <laughs> the showrunner said that we maybe haven't met all of the crash survivors yet 
yeah. which made me think about the tailies from Lost, the infamous oh. tailies who were <laughs> summarily int- introduced and then summarily kicked, killed off because they were like, uh, never mind. Uh, so that makes me a little bit nervous, but also really excited. And I think that's the fun of just giving in to a show like this or like Westworld where you're like, you know what? I know this might disappoint me somewhere down the road, but like it's just fun to be intrigued and to be reading fan theories and all that with this added element that Lost had too, to some extent of the the real human drama so beautifully rendered by these incredible actors. Yeah. I did get to um, kind of, I, I fell too deep into the rabbit hole of like who could appear next in the present timeline for the mm-hmm. finale. And there were lots of rumors about uh, someone appearing at the reunion, like an Ali Sheedy or Lauren Ambrose. <laughs> I was, yeah. I was too primed for it. So that was, my self-inflicted letdown of the finale. I uh, Lauren Ambrose or Merritt Weaver as adult Van, like because oh, yes. we don't we don't yeah. know if she makes. Up. I, I really can't decide which one I want more, <laughs> but hopefully one or the other shows up. Yeah, the casting possibilities are really exciting. Yeah, yeah. Um, our colleague Hillary Busis, who uh, is on vacation, otherwise I would have brought her on for this conversation. Um, talked to the showrunners and did get an answer from them about this is like mid-season spoilery, so I'll just go ahead and get into it. But uh, Jackie's journal, which uh, shows records of her having seen things like Bring It On and American Beauty, which came out after the plane crash happened, and they claim it's because Shauna was kind of writing it out of guilt as like a survivor thing to pretend to be Jackie. And for me personally, I think that's just evidence that they didn't know how big the show was going to be, and they didn't they messed. <laughs> it up <laughs> i don't know yeah, they'll ever maybe. be convinced otherwise um but that felt like a good reminder to me being like okay they're figuring this out like let's let's pump the brakes on the theories and just see how this story plays out and you know like like the um the the second opening credit sequence of the great leftovers said let the mystery be you know sometimes <laughs> you don't need to go you could just be like there's this is a mysterious world where things are happening that we don't know about which is true of our own world so uh i'm That's content true. to uh let some things just kind of hang in the air as a question mark i also don't pay close enough attention to things where i didn't notice that in the journals so Maybe that's on Oh, me. my God. I mean, I see, like, Titanic showing up in, like, teen girl handwriting, allegedly from 1996. <laughs> like, if you ask me about songs that came out this month versus, like, last October, I'd have no idea. But, like, I'm very well aware of when Spice Girls debuted in the United States because that right. was where my, that's how plastic my brain was at the time. Uh, well, Yellow Jackets will be back on Showtime at some point, we hope. Um, and hopefully we get to keep talking about it through Emmy season because um, I think we, we're ready to cheerlead for all, for all of our Yellow Jackets buzz buzz. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. 
So now let's listen to my conversation with Jesse Buckley, who is uh, one of the many tremendous actors in The Lost Daughter um, and is currently in cabaret on the West End in London. So she's been a little less visible on the circuit than uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal, Dakota Johnson have been, um, which is why I was so excited to talk to her. Also because she plays the character in the movie who I relate to the most as the young version of Leda, who is uh, trying to raise small children and have a job and, and have it all, which, as we all know, is uh, a lot harder than it sounds. Um, and she was so lovely to talk to about making the movie and working with Maggie Gyllenhaal and working uh, in making sex scenes with Maggie Gyllenhaal's husband, which is not a challenge uh, most actors have to go through. Uh, so let's listen to that conversation with Jesse Buckley. How's it been being uh, making it through Omicron and staying on stage? Are you glad to have the kind of daily routine with the world still being crazy? Yeah, it's so nice. We closed for two weeks over Christmas because of Omicron. And then... Um, and then we came back on the 27th of December and it's been, um, oh, it's been so nice. Like you just don't take anything for granted like that. And especially with this show and this production, like the audience are so kind of complicit in it. And so um, mm-hmm. part of the story that uh, when, on the first night when we came back, we were just clapping the audience at the end. <laughs> <laughs> like, thanks for coming back. But um, it seems to be kind of dying down a little bit here on this side, I think. And and people are coming and wearing masks and everybody does a lateral flow before they go in. So, um, so far, so good. Touch wood. Yeah. Well, and The Lost Daughter has been, you know, kind of all over the world, basically. It's been in every festival imaginable. And, you know, Maggie's been traveling everywhere and you've been sort of part of it, but sort of not because you've been on the West End. So how has that been being, you know, part of this big movie, but also on a kind of a different planet doing cabaret? At every step of the way, I, I've i just been so proud to be part of this in every way and like so proud of all those amazing women and to be able to stand alongside them and I think when they premiered in Venice, I was in Toronto filming and um, I, I don't think I was filming that day, but I just took myself, <laughs> I took myself to like get a, mar- a, like a, a spicy margarita and I was like in my tracksuit pants. I was like, girls, I'm here with you. <laughs> don't worry, I'm flying the flag. Um, so yeah, I just feel really proud to be part of it. And um, when I can join it, it's so lovely. Um, I I couldn't love all of them more it was such like a fun job to make and actually I think the last time I talked to you guys I was just in Greece about to start filming it I think I was in Mm -hmm. quarantine so um yeah it's just it's you know it's so nice to be part of something that you just really love and loved making and loved making with those people so that's it's good I remember hearing, you know, when you guys were all heading toward Greece for for set, and it was like one of the first productions to go back, and it was just like, those lucky ducks, they get to go to Greece, and we're all stuck in our house. And my understanding is it felt that way, too, that everyone was on set being like, oh, my God, I can't believe we're pulling this off. Oh, completely, yeah. You know, I guess everything this year is that you just take every day as it comes, you know, nothing, there's always an unknown, and so every day that you get through, you're just super grateful for, and... Maggie also just set a tone of like, let's have fun, you know? We don't know what's going to happen next. Let's try and make a great film every single day and also have great fun. And like, we'd finish shooting, we'd all jump into the sea and then we'd go and have chips and wine. And, you know, it was just like, (laughs) um, I think life's, you got to enjoy the good bits when they're there. So yeah, we, we, we had a blast. 
Yeah, the way Maggie's talked about her process as director, you know, this is she's doing it for the first time, but she. It's, I think she said, like, everyone has to feel loved and supported, not just like that you're there and supported by your director, but that there's affection going around. And that's how you get the best work out of people. And I wonder how that felt for you as an actor. And if you notice the difference of, of her approach there in, in the way that she brought the work out of you guys. Oh, totally. I, I remember she made like a kind of speech on the first day before we started shooting. And I, I was right at the beginning before, like when Olivia and Dakota and everybody landed. So we were in our own kind of little small indie movie. Um, yeah. But she said it's tone for everybody, you know, all the ca- crew, all the cast about like, you can make a great film when, you know, but to make a really great film, you know, when everybody's heart is in it, that's what really brings a bit of magic to it. And, um, and that's Maggie too, you know, and, and she's not just asking everybody to be lovies, you know, she's asking mm-hmm. people to really just step up to the plate and invest as all they can and jump off the cliff with her the way she did completely. And as an actress, like, that's the best. Like, that's so much fun. You just feel so compelled to do your best work. And I would have jumped off so many cliffs from Maggie. Whatever (laughs) she wanted, you know, I would have done. And we would have done together. Like, she really set a kind of tone of making something together in the best possible way. And you've, I mean, you've worked long enough to know that, like, a director can make such a difference in that. Does that sense of, of commitment have to come from the director? Like, you, know, if, uh, you as an individual actor can be committed to your role, but does the director have to bring everyone together in that way? Are they the only one who can do that? Um, no, I think it's everybody. You know, like, uh, mm. what, what, I, what I love about filming and theatre and everything is that half, like, a millisecond of magic on, on screen counts on every single person in that room mm-hmm. from the lighting crew to the to the sound to the camera team to Maggie to us to something that's not even physically there all coming together in one bit so um yeah I mean Maggie create and whoever a director creates that tone but everybody steps into that you know and that's yeah. the there n- n- nothing is because of one person I think yeah I love that the way she talks about emerging as a director is from working on The Deuce and playing a character who became a filmmaker uh, making porn films, um, which is a really interesting way to start thinking of yourself behind the camera. And But this movie does have a lot of intimacy in it, and it, a lot of it's on you, and it's scenes with Maggie's husband, which is a whole different thing we can talk about. But I'm, I'm just really curious about coming from that perspective of working with an actress, having been an actress yourself, and getting that level of intimacy with the camera and maybe just tell me about the conversations you guys had to make those scenes possible and feel as as real but as 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 real as they do on screen but presumably comfortable for you and like a place that you felt okay going yeah I mean I I was aware that that part of Leda as a character was incredibly important and it was definitely you know her hunger and her sexuality and her sensuality and her kind of poetry of her body as a woman was super important to tell the story of this character so I, I, I knew I, I had a sense of that before we started shooting that that's mm-hmm. also something that I was interested in exploring and kind of embodying and um, mm-hmm. with regards to the kind of intimate scenes and stuff that was a, you know Maggie created a space which you know we owned as the actresses but also if there was anything uncomfortable where we didn't feel we were cap- able to do that and it wasn't necessarily going to help the story in some way she that was definitely okay too um I never ever felt unsafe like I felt really empowered and enabled and 
Um, Helene Louvartzer, DOP, you know, is so sensitive and beautiful. And um, I felt really held in that space to really just like own it, you know, all of it. Like mm-hmm. it's nothing to be ashamed of or or shy away from. And and maybe that was a journey within myself where I was like, yeah, I want to do that. Fuck it. <laughs> like, <laughs> Is it for for doing like there's pretty brief nudity in this, but it's still, you know, it's a big leap for a lot of people. Is that a conversation you have to have your, with yourself before you say, like, fuck it, let's go for it? Is that is that a big line for you to cross? Uh, sure. Like everybody's got their own like little hang ups. But um, <laughs> I also felt like Lady is a woman that I know in my life. Like she's my mom and she's mm. my sister. She's me. She, her body is all of us, you know, she's not perfect and she's not trying to be perfect. Um, Her beauty comes from her imperfections. And in a way, I came to terms with that through her as well. And, you know, Mm. her skin was um, a really good place to just let it all kind of... But yeah, don't get me wrong. (laughs) I also was like... um, Now, I mean, the whole world is going to see my bottom and um <laughs> that's just there now so it's a gift <laughs> you know if you get it captured beautifully you'll look back in 30 years be like thank goodness that it's yeah. been like you know, when anyone whenever anyone is like photographed so beautifully in a movie you're like ah, oh, what a treasure we have them looking so beautiful yeah this, and i think you know, it was all of time so important for um this character you know um mm-hmm. and i was willing to do whatever you know do that yeah. And I don't think you have children, but I imagine you know people who do. I'm curious about what you're hearing now that The Lost Daughter is everywhere. Are you hearing from mothers that you know about um, possibly how seen they feel by this movie? Yeah. Um, no, I, I don't have kids. I, I'm the eldest of five, so I feel like I understand. <laughs> you did your child raising. I've done, I've done, I've done my half a share. Um, yeah, that's been like such a beautiful thing is mothers that I don't know mothers that I do know, my own mother feeling seen, like you said, and being part of a conversation where actually the secret chaos of what they're actually experiencing is being spoken aloud and um, and almost being able to take a sigh of relief. Um, but there's also mm-hmm. been lots of other, com- you know, some people find that really difficult, you know. It's not just all being kind of... I, I, I respect whatever anybody wants to take from it is theirs, you know, Um but um, I'm just glad that there's a conversation. That's all you really want. <laughs> Did you talk to mothers that you know or, or anyone else beforehand just to, to feel like tapping into this? You know, having been the oldest of five, you know, being around little kids. But was there a, was there research beforehand to get that specific aspect of it? The like the internal motherhood struggle that doesn't get seen usually. I didn't really talk to anyone specifically. I mean, I did feel um, I felt very close to my mom when I was making this, you know, Um And I guess something that I realized from doing this and the story and was also, you know, it's not anybody, nobody else is going to hand you your life, you know, and there's a kind Hmm. of an unspoken curse that is passed down sometimes, not just between women, between women and also between a kind of patriarchy or whatever, but really between our, within ourselves is like a kind of, repression within ourselves and being a mother is such a beautiful incredible thing but it's huge you know it's so massive it's the biggest thing that can ever happen to you in your life 
And there's lots of colors around that. And finding who you are amongst this huge thing is is complicated. Um, and I guess the thing I learned from Leda is actually cutting the kind of cord of, I call them stone mothers, you know, where people kind of close themselves in because they found hmm. one identity and they forget about all the other parts of themselves. And But there's lots of kind of different kinds of moms, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, you talk about the repression within yourself and the thing, rewatching the movie, the thing that I clued into way more was less the, the motherhood and more the like trying to be on vacation and let go and trying to like be a relaxed and easy person and not being able to do it. And that was the part that was just like, oh my God, I've so been there. Like there, there's so many layers of how of people holding themselves back in this movie that um, I just really appreciated a second time. So I don't know if that was something you found in your research too, of can't chill out sometimes. <laughs> it's a problem we all have. My boyfriend's parents went to, <laughs> went to see the, the, the film and, um, I got a message being like, I don't understand why everybody's had such a miserable time on a Greek island. Love the film. I mean, you're like, have you not been on a bad vacation uh, despite all of your best efforts? Yeah. And the truth is, we had a great time. <laughs> That's what's so funny. All the like Greek dancing. I mean, I guess there is a good dancing scene in the movie, but it's a it's a different thing entirely. Um, I wanted to ask about uh, latest clothes. Um, in there's so many scenes in that apartment where you have on these like comfortable looking, but like they look like what Olivia Coleman is wearing. So it's like too old for what Leda should be wearing at that point. But they look like exactly what you want to work in and to be around kids. I'm just I wonder what kind of conversations you had about those costumes because they felt spot on to me, and I'm curious about how they got to that point. Um, well, Edward Gibbon, our costume designer, um, is amazing. And it just kind of came out of a conversation with him and Maggie and me and photo references. And I remember I, like, I sent Maggie kind of Sally Mann picture and Sally Mann had like done a kind of um, exhibition of her own children, I think at a certain point. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so I don't know. I think also like they're also, I mean, I, I'm actually wearing tracksuit pants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got to be comfortable. <laughs> that none of us wear our worst clothes at home. <laughs> Especially if you've got kids around who are going to get Play-Doh on it or something like exactly. that. Like you got to be I mean, practical. I was absolutely delighted. I, I, I'm, I'm all for comfort over like anything. <laughs> um, also, I guess with, there's like later... Lady is a liver, you know, she wants life. And and there's a poetry about her as well. And there's like, there's nothing about her that's somebody who wants to be hemmed in in any way. I think that's what's, I mean, you can think of a version of this film where it would show her feeling stifled by her life by like wearing restrictive clothes or something like that. And I and feel like this movie is so confident, it's confident enough to be like, no, she's still who she is, despite kind of feeling trapped by her life. Like it can still, it can be expressed in all the clothes in different ways. Like it's not, it doesn't have to uh, change her personality entirely to to show being restricted by this life, I guess. And, and like, you know, I think the really amazing thing what, which Maggie has made, you know, and Helena's been ma managed to do is is find the gray area in all of this. You know, like you can be a mom and you can be a really brilliant woman in the world. And you could be one, you know, you can still have love for your husband, but you can also want a lover like you. There's a chaos to it all, you know. Yeah. And, and thank God, like the more I talk to people and the more I 
grow up in my own life, I'm so grateful for the chaos that other, you know, that life is and that people share and be like, there's no black and white ever. Even mm-hmm. if there is, if people pretend there is, you can sure as hell be sure that it's absolute carnage <laughs> in some <laughs> secret pocket of their life. Yeah. Um, yeah, I worked with a writer on a piece about this movie and a couple others, and she really pointed out the scene with the, the glass door breaks in the apartment with the girls. And not just what happens in it, but the way she put it was that the camera doesn't judge Leda in that scene. And it's not a complicated camera thing. It's really just lingering on your face. And I wonder how that played out on the day, if you did multiple takes with and she, you know the way that you reacted to it or how, or how it worked out that way, that you really do feel... Like, it's just saying, well, this is the thing that happens sometimes. It's not her being a bad mom. It's just a moment in her life. How did that work on the day that you guys filmed that? Um, God, I can't really remember. But, um, you know, I, I, I never felt like, personally, that Leda was a, a, a bad mom. I think um, she was just trying to do her best. And sometimes, like, loving somebody is just too much, you know, and you... And you Fall, you know, you you're you break apart basically, and um, you're not even aware of moments like that. Sometimes, I think mm. that for me, that maybe that moment is that like it's a bit shocking. That's what's inside her. What's inside all of us is that you can do something without meaning to, you know, and break yeah. something apart. But I don't know. I'm not. I'm not. I'm never really sure what I'm doing when I'm filming. I just kind of, <laughs> I just kind of do it. <laughs> Do you have a, do you like leave part of yourself on the set when you leave the set? Is it that kind of thing where you have to like draw a line between work and life or is it just all kind of all flow together? I don't really know. I guess it all kind of flows together. I I, I, I don't, I don't really ever want to be too aware of what I'm doing. I just like, like while I'm prepping or whatever, I'll, I'll take whatever ingredients come my way or what I start reacting to around me and conversations that I have with Maggie and stuff, but Whatever happens on set, I, I, I don't really have, I don't really feel like it's anything to do with me. I just kind of am there. <laughs> Does theater feel different? Because with theater, it relies so much on precision and kind of being the same night after night. Is is film more of a, you know, chance to get outside of yourself? Um, in some ways, although like you know, going back and doing theater again, all you all you want in both film and theater or singing or whatever is um to experience something you know really Mm. truthfully experience something and you know theater is never the same every night like an audience and I I genuinely like an audience's energy changes the whole thing Mm -hmm. why somebody laughs at a line one night and not the next night or why a whole audience starts clapping behind you one night and not the next night during a song is like it's a trip, you know, You have, there's no rhyme or reason to it. So really, you're just trying to tap into whatever is happening there in that moment. Um, and that's the thrill is like, and who you are on each day is completely different as well. Like I, I, I hate, I don't like projecting an idea onto something because who knows what you might miss on the other side of it. Um, hmm. So really, I'm. I just want to kind of be there and see what happens. And that's the best thing about working with kids as well. Is like, hmm. there's nothing but truth. Like, if they're bored or if they're upset or if they're genuinely curious, like, that's the magic, you know. And and you, you are just to be available to them and and 
and be part of that moment with them. Is it hard to be mean to kids when they're so available like that? I, I, as I have kids, I found it very real, the frustration level. But when you're acting it, I wonder if it feels like um, like, like hard because they're so sweet. and <laughs> they're, they're just trying their best. <laughs> um, yeah, it is. It is hard. And I guess you, you also have to put in boundaries for them, for them to recognize that this is a play space. You know, this isn't real mm-hmm. and focus that for that short amount of time. And usually there is only a short amount of time that they can be on set anyway. Um, You know, Maggie was so amazing at creating that space and holding that space and also really asking them to step forward when they needed to, Um, but also was very protective of them. And and as was, you know, so was I. And I kind of was like, you know, you got to mind your... I remember when I started, like, I was just so raw. I had no mm. idea idea of, like, there was no boundaries, you know. And every time you fell off the, the edge of the stage or, like, whatever, because you didn't reach something, I thought that was the end. Mm. And it broke my heart. Like, it would break my heart. So you kind of... I remember just saying to them, like, you got to mind, mind your heart. Like, if you're able to be the sensitive in a play space, that's really incredible but you've got to mind mind it and I've, yeah. I've, I'm holding it for you too in this space and we'll do what we need to do and then we're all going to jump in the pool afterwards and mm-hmm. have a laugh. <laughs> yeah yeah like you have a responsibility to your scene partner always but with kids the, with kids the responsibility is ratcheted up so much. Um, one last question I think and you might not have the perspective on this yet but I wonder if, if working on The Lost Daughter specifically changed anything for you in what you want to look for as an actor, in a director, in a set, in characters that you play? Was there something that you came out of from this saying, okay, I, my path has been shifted a little bit in in this direction? Yeah, I guess most jobs do in some, in some shape or form. I definitely felt like I grew up as a woman on this set because of the women that I was working with and the story mm-hmm. that I was working with this. And um, I think there was probably a part of me that maybe before this film, you know, like in certain scenes, I would, um, in a slight way, diffused feelings or hmm. parts of myself that I probably felt un- uncomfortable with, whether that was like, you know, being girly or whatever. Whereas Maggie created a space where she was like, own all of all of it, like just step mm-hmm. into all of it. Don't try and diffuse it into anything which makes you less. Um, mm-hmm. And I definitely feel like that is something that, woke me up as at this point in my life um and I just I as well like I'm not I'm not interested in women that are going to um I like the beautiful chaos of women (laughs) and of the world Mm -hmm. and this was a film which definitely hell had that you know and I really enjoyed doing that um and I also really I think Maggie was maybe, you know, maybe one of the first film, female film film directors that I'd worked with. And Helene was the first female DOP I had worked with. And Yeah, they're so rare. They're amazing. Even more rare than female directors. And I, I yeah. really loved it. And, you know, I definitely feel excited about working with incredible, bright, brilliant, empowering women like Maggie again in the future. You know, I, I, I'll put my shoulder behind any female 
<laughs> director who who is kind of looking for the same thing, you know. Um, yeah, and it feels I think really exciting. Like sometimes you ask like what it's like working with a female director, and sometimes people don't like that question. And I think it's fair because it's like, well, they're a director, like anyone. But I do think there are some ways in which it makes a huge difference, and it's interesting just to hear that it can make a difference working. Well, for a look woman, at the even. like you know power of the dog, and you know there's just so many. What's exciting is that there, that you, you you see when you create a space where more diverse conversations can be had and more diverse perspectives of one story can be had through either a woman or a man or you know whatever race or whatever, then it's always going to be more interesting and the conversation yeah. is always going to be growing and those are the things that I want to be part of. Um, yeah. And I really loved this experience with Maggie. Like. Um, it didn't matter that she was a first-time director. Like, I think she's an incredible woman. And that was the thing that led me to want to go on this with her in the first place. And I feel like that would be the same with whoever. Yeah. All right, actually, one more question. You mentioned Power of the Dog. Is there anything else you've seen from any other movies that you're really uh, into from this past year? You. I'm very excited to see Licorice, Licorice Pizza. I'm oh, very so excited good. to see. It's so good. He's my favorite. It oh, looks amazing. I, I've been listening to the soundtrack like as I'm, when I'm getting putting on my makeup for, oh, for work, and I'm obsessed. Like, I, but I want to go see it in the cinema. I I, I don't want to like um, see it. Uh, I I tell you what, I did love was I loved the Beatles documentary. That was amazing. Ooh, all eight hours. That's a big commitment. Oh wow, that was brilliant. I absolutely <laughs> loved that. <laughs> Yeah, I watched Lakers Pizza at home and it had the timestamp on it and I thought it was like three hours long and I was so excited and then it ended and because there was like a Q&A at the end and I was actively sad it was already over. I was like, I was... I was like, I wasn't ready to be ripped out of that world yet. So that's um, that's a high endorsement because I usually get tired. So, um, all right, thank you so much. It was really a, a pleasure talking to you, and um, I hope the rest of the run goes great, and that um, you know everything stays healthy and you can keep running. Yeah, you too. <laughs> right, thanks, thanks a lot. lot. Bye. Bye. That does it for this week's show. You can find us at VanityFair.com, including uh, David's Drive My Car feature, Richard Sundance coverage, Rebecca's Reunited series. It's all there. It's all happening. You can find us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And David. David Campfield 97. And Rebecca left because uh, she didn't want Yellow Jacket spoilers, but she is at Becca M. Ford. Uh, you can also text us at subtext. Go to joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text 718-550-2059. Um, more, more than one of you texted in woe about Kristen Stewart not getting a SAG nomination. And um, I, we see you and we hear you and we're here to support you. But you can text us about whatever you want. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for what we hope you're all saying about our episode run times as we get closer and closer to the Oscars goes to Rebecca Ford. The people are getting past the the three-hour runtime. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR.